Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Global news story headline was premiers tell Trudeau they want to go to war with the U.S. over Keystone XL. This is such a huge issue, a massive issue. And if you're not in Western Canada, it still affects you in every which way possible. Just think of the, uh, now just think of the energy security. Think of the money that's involved. Think of the jobs. Just think of the economic realities. The Premier of Saskatchewan joins us, Premier Scott Moe, who has spoken out on this issue for some considerable period of time. And we're always pleased to speak with the Premier. Premier, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate uh, you making the time. Would you begin, please, by describing, in your words, President Biden's executive order, day one, on the job, cancelling the Keystone XL pipeline expansion, uh, and I, I'll, I'll quote, let me quote you here, a devastating blow to the North American energy security. And, and that's, that's about all I have to say, is it is a devastating blow, not only to North American energy security, not only to the opportunity for additional jobs, but preserving and securing the jobs that we do have in the refineries in the Gulf Coast, as well as in the oil fields of Saskatchewan and Alberta. Um, but, you know, lastly, but not, not leastly, I, I think it also uh, is very disappointing for, um, yes, the environment. This was a net zero pipeline, and I can talk at length about the Saskatchewan uh, energy that was going into that pipeline and the, and the environmental footprint that it had and the positive uh, changes that are, are happening in the Saskatchewan energy industry. But lastly, but not leastly, most certainly, uh, as we move forward, what we have here is a, a president who on day one has retroactively uh, removed a permit that had been approved, uh, permits on both sides of the border had been approved, construction was underway um, and this is i think very disturbing for the future investment of uh, north american infrastructure that will ensure that our north american economy can remain competitive for years into the future so it's, this upsets the the apple cart in many ways mm -hmm. i'll ask you about the uh, environmental footprint in saskatchewan and uh, perhaps even more generally for keystone but let me just touch on this. Mr. Biden was promising this move, his executive order, during the election campaign. Did the Canadian government, the federal government, not do enough to oppose publicly such a move during the U.S. election and make it clear to the Biden campaign that Keystone is critical to maintain energy security in the U.S. and Canada? Because, Premier, as I look at it, there was ample opportunity for Mr. Trudeau and his government to say to all the campaigns, Hey, we have some really major issues here that matter to us, that matter to North America, and here's one of them. There, this this uh, decision as we went through the campaign and, and as it's been made on day one of President Biden's uh, administration, um, Canada does not need to accept it. Uh, we should oppose it uh, from the premiers right on through to the prime minister. And we should, at every level of, of the Canadian government and Canadian industry, make the case for why this pipeline should go forward. Um, energy security. Uh, it increases uh, and the energy security for all people in North America. The jobs, as I said, on both sides of the border. And this truly is, 
is a, is a pipeline or a piece of infrastructure that has an environmental uh, standard, unlike any other infrastructure piece that I have seen, any other pipeline certainly that I have seen uh, be proposed for North America. So this is the gold standard uh, for pipelines. It's under construction. It had approvals on both sides of the border. And and to retroactively remove it is, is uh, you know, disturbing at the very least. And so I, I would say that uh, we have some work to do us for uh, all of us as leaders uh, in Canada, whether it be myself as a Premier of Saskatchewan. I know Premier Kenny is committed to this. You'll be speaking to him tomorrow. But also the Prime Minister, the federal government, and the ambassador in the U.S. to uh, to speak to and to explain the merits as to why this piece of infrastructure should go forward. It is definitely positive for all of us in North America. And listen, we have to continue to attract this type of investment to ensure that we have a competitive continental economy because we are competing with other continental economies around the world. And we need to do everything we can to ensure that we are, you know, keeping up and staying a step ahead. Premier, are you satisfied with Mr. Trudeau's reaction to the Biden executive order? And are you privy to what was said in that conversation between the prime minister and the president? Well, we had a conversation, I believe, the day before uh, the prime minister was going to speak to uh, uh, President Biden. Uh, All of the premiers uh, were on the phone. And so we had a, a good discussion about uh, you know, representing Canada's interests, representing Canadians um, with respect to this this piece of infrastructure. And listen, this is not an Alberta problem. Uh, this is not even a Western Canadian problem. This is a Canada-U.S. problem, uh, not only on this piece of infrastructure, but on as we move forward, attempting to continue to attract private investment into n- numerous infrastructure uh infrastructure projects that we have uh the prime minister uh, as i say i i think he needs to dig his heels in on this a bit we we didn't accept when uh the previous president trump um said that the the uh modernization of nafta was off no we joined together as team canada premiers and prime minister and, and trade delegations and went to washington dc and, and spoke to the merits of of why it was important to modernize that agreement and how it was positive for for all of us on both sides of the border. The same with the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs came on. We didn't accept that the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, were just going to impact us. We actually put uh, retaliatory sanctions in place at that point in time and again uh, engaged with that Team Canada approach with our largest trading partner to find a way through that conversation. We need to do the same now. Premier, uh, you're calling on uh, Mr. Trudeau to clarify what this decision means to the future of Canadian-American economic relations. Do you have concerns Biden's executive order may place Canada and the United States on opposite sides of a wide range of economic issues and that our two countries may end up in a trade war? The premiers did tell Mr. Trudeau that you want to go to war with the United States over Keystone. Where do we stand on this? I don't think there's a, a trade war uh, that is brewing, but what um, our, our prime minister needs to do, and us as, as premiers uh, collectively, and, and those are impacted, and, I, and there's a, a great many more than Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, but we do need to uh, stand up and represent the people that are working in industries that are creating wealth in our communities, and, and uh, the, the prime minister most certainly needs to stand up for our Canadian energy industry. Uh, the, the challenge we have with the decision that is made, and these decisions made uh, all the time that, you know, we may not totally agree with, but this particular decision was made. Uh, it was a permit that was pr- provided. Permits were provided on both sides of the border, but then it was retroactively pulled after construction has began. That has a, the ability and the willingness to do that. 
can have a tremendous shock and reverberation into the investment community uh, in the days ahead. Who's to say that uh, there aren't other uh, projects that, you know, maybe being built or being uh, attracting investment right now that that may uh, have their permits pulled uh, at, at some point uh, mid-project. It just it really sends a wrong message to, um, in this case, uh, to promoting uh, North American energy security, to promoting and attracting uh, that private investment to build a, a piece of, uh, of, of infrastructure like this KXL pipeline, which is uh, among the very best that I've seen in its environmental uh, targets and the environmental uh, the environmental record of the product that is going into that pipeline. Uh, mo- most certainly, uh, our prime minister needs to needs to stand up for for this industry that's so important to so many Canadians. And as far as sanctions go, I, I don't think anyone is saying go out and use these sanctions today, but they're always on the table and and they shouldn't be removed from the table. And and we need to ensure that we are able to put forward the case to the Biden administration as to why why this project uh, needs to be built, the merits of the project, and how it will benefit not only Canadians, but benefit people south of the border as well. The cancelling of this of this project is not good for America either. No, it isn't. Um, and, and Premier, when you talk about the pipeline infrastructure, the state of Michigan and Governor Whitmer started a court action late last year to try to uh, put an end to a pipeline that exists under the Straits of Mackinac, and the Great Lakes arguing that uh, that particular pipeline threatens the drinking water supply of millions of Americans. And I wonder if that and other pipelines could, in fact, also become targets of the Biden administration. There's the challenge of uh, the precedent that has been set. Uh, uh, there is a, uh, an example of a piece of, of pipeline infrastructure that has been delivering safely um, for years now. I believe it's six or 700,000 barrels per day. Uh, to people along the eastern seaboard uh, and to refineries in, in eastern Canada and I believe maybe even in the U.S. Um, uh, energy products that are coming from the, the prairie provinces in Saskatchewan. And so this is, uh, you know, there is an example of, of where this conversation can go and, and the, the, the dangerous precedents that may have been set by, by President Biden on day one. Now, in saying that, I, I think there is a way through this. I think the prime minister can make the case for uh, KXL. And I would hope that President Biden and I would ask his administration to listen to that case. This is a win when it comes to energy security for North Americans. It's a win when it comes to jobs for uh, Americans as well as Canadians. And it most certainly is a win for the environment as this is providing a comparatively sustainable product to the Gulf Coast refineries. Um, as opposed, they're going to continue without this, this KXL expansion. They're going to continue to uh, bring that energy in from places like Venezuela and OPEC nations. So, uh, much, uh, much, much more dirty product uh, compared to what is coming out of Western Canada at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we're already bringing some 7,000, 700,000 plus barrels of, you know, questionably sourced oil into Eastern Canadian refineries each and every day. Premier, I need to ask you a question about the vaccine reality. And you and I talked about this previously. Now we have the reality of uh, Pfizer slowing down its delivery and uh, the government, federal government, assuring that uh, that is going to pick up and that the expectation is that by September, those who wish to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. What's your sense of what's going on with the vaccine uh, delivery system and how's it affecting how is Ottawa's performance affecting Saskatchewan well I've always said we need uh, 
we need as many vaccines as quickly as we can get them. The, the, uh, the pullback to, I believe we had zero deliveries of Pfizer vaccine this week. I believe we're having zero deliveries of Pfizer vaccine next week. That will leave a few Moderna uh, doses to be delivered in certain areas of the nation uh, over the course of the next two weeks. Us uh, in Saskatchewan, we're well over 95% of the vaccines that we have are in Saskatchewan people's arms. So yeah, this, this, is, this is troubling. And I, I guess the way through it is uh, I, w- I would ask again the, the, the federal government, the prime minister, I understand, did speak with the CEO of Pfizer. He had let us know that and it's appreciated. And I think uh, Premier Ford said maybe he should call him a few more times. But we do need to be adamant on this as well. And the, the federal uh, Ministry of Health and their officials should really be pushing uh, not only Pfizer, but also Moderna for additional shipments and really trying to expedite safely. Uh, the path of the the next two vaccines through the process of approval here. Uh, They they have some Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine have a few attributes that I think might be favorable in us really ramping up our vaccination numbers. I believe Johnson & Johnson might be one shot. And uh, AstraZeneca, I believe, uh, doesn't have the the cold uh, freezing requirements that uh, the two vaccines that we have now out there, it can be stored in the fridge to my understanding. So that, that really changes uh, the logistics of getting a large number of vaccines out to um, as many Canadians as possible. So again, this needs to be an all hands on deck. And I, I, uh, I uh, would and have uh, Saskatchewan has, like other provinces, worked very closely with the federal government. Um, but we we just need to do everything we can and leave no stone unturned uh, to get as many vaccines as quickly as possible. Um, not only out to the provinces, but then obviously the provinces get those vaccines into people's uh, arms as they choose. And we're doing that here in Saskatchewan. We're proud of what our public health uh, uh, crew has done. And uh, it would be a little bit of a, a breather here for a week, and then we're going to get back at it and get as many as we can into uh, into the communities this spring. Premier Moore, I really appreciate the time. We have less than a minute. We need more than that. But uh, tell us again, please, or, or expand a little bit on, on Saskatchewan's participation in Keystone XL and how it's been an environmentally responsible exercise. Well, we, as we've talked before, we have oil fields here that are uh, sequestering carbon into the oil field through enhanced oil recovery. The energy that's coming out of uh, Lloyd Minster area is not that. It's uh, it's uh, using new technology in uh, in thermal uh, thermal production methods, um, and and this is where we have focused on reducing our methane emissions. And it's companies like Husky and Serafina that have invested and invested greatly, literally billions and billions of dollars to reduce their environmental footprint. Barrels of oil coming out of that oil field into the KXL pipeline um, are operating at about a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions per barrel of oil. That's something Canadians can be proud of, and that, I think, could impact the decision uh, that President Biden has made this week. John Fraser is the founding president of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada. He wrote uh, Globe and Mail op-eds. Payette's tragic appointment wouldn't have happened under Harper's system. And uh, Mr. Fraser joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. John, thank you very much for taking the time. Happy to be here, sir. That there was no need for this disastrous conclusion to Julie Payette's term as Canada's Governor General to happen, a highly accomplished woman, um, someone this country has every reason to be proud of. If the proper vetting had taken place, we wouldn't be seeing this week, would we? No, we wouldn't. Um, but um, I think 
she looked so attractive um, on paper that just sort of didn't go the extra steps that you should go in such an important post and check check stuff that was easily found on the internet um, and that uh, would have required also uh, a few phone calls to places where she'd worked before and they would have found out she had some anger issues. It's all pretty sad because she is an amazing person, a wonderful person, and now her, rep- her reputation's in tatters. How does this reflect on Mr. Trudeau? Not good. Not good. It reflects... Um, reflects that 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 he was trying i i mean i'll give him credit for trying to come up with an original idea for our 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 sovereign's representative i mean um i think that's not a bad sign uh on the other hand no marks for not doing it with some sort of systematic order and especially when there was a, a perfectly good system that 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 would have got him an exciting candidate uh would have actually given him a choice of four or five exciting candidates uh, and a system that was already set up by the Harper regime. And they, they claimed they didn't like that system, except that's exactly the system that they chose to choose new senators uh, for the new-style Trudeau Senate. Yeah, exactly. And, and tell us, please, what it was. What are the fundamentals of the system that Stephen Harper had put in place, which Mr. Trudeau should have employed? Well, there is a, a, a cabinet official uh, who has, uh, among other things, is the secretary to the Queen of Canada, and they have the liaison between the government of Canada and the sovereign in Buckingham Palace. And not many people know that, but that job exists and still exists. Um, in the case uh, of the Harper administration, they expanded that position and gave him the right to appoint two um, officials that were sort of semi, semi-permanent appointments. They, were, they weren't full-time salaries. They were, they were by honor, honor, honorariums. And there was a francophone and an anglophone. And they were part of a permanent uh, group of people that were just there to vet vice-regal appointments. So when there was a vacancy at Rideau Hall, they would also appoint two um, nationally pertinent people, historians or constitutional experts, to be part of that team, making a team of five people. Um, and the job was to give the prime minister five choices and, and to explain why they did it and that they were vetted and that they were okay. If it was for a provincial lieutenant governor, they would appoint two people from the province where the lieutenant governor was going to be appointed and that those two would join the, the permanent team. And again, um, the, the prime minister would be given five choices. Um, it is the Prime Minister's prerogative to uh, recommend a, a name to uh, Queen Elizabeth, and that's how the system worked. Um, they, they just uh, didn't, for some reason, they, they wanted what they wanted, and that, that's where this tragedy is, is located. Mm-hmm. You participated in the vetting process for... In uh, Ontario, yeah. In Ontario. What was that like? It was fun. It was like, it was a chance to go out and talk to service clubs and schools and, and uh, all sorts of organizations and explain what the office, the vice regal office, the office of lieutenant governor was about. Um, I put in the, in the Globe story, my, my favorite moment was at a grade school, grade seven and eight, and they were very keen to get Tim Horton uh, made lieutenant governor. And I said, well, one of the problems is that they'd like people to still be alive for this job. Um, and they said, oh, they were sort of hoping for free donuts every time the Queen had a birthday. <laughs> uh, trust kids to bring it down to the most common denominator. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Those donuts uh, I after all. Yeah, I find it interesting that the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, is saying the current situation demonstrates 
the vetting process must be improved. Perhaps Mr. LeBlanc or Minister LeBlanc should simply have said the vetting process needs to be maintained. Well, um, they, they, they made the initial mistake, and, and you don't expect politicians to admit fulsomely the mistakes they've made. They, they, they have to inch towards doing the right thing sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. What, John, what are the particular challenges to be the, the governor general? Because if the job was proved to be too much for um, Julie Payette and perhaps um, how she interacts with people, what are, the, what are the aspects of the job that would be particularly challenging to a person? It's, it's the lifestyle you have to live. Um, if you're not used to um, public life, it's pretty tough. You've got security 24-7, and that, that is security. I mean, it's, you can hardly take a pee without, without someone there to, to guard you. Um, the fear being that, of course, if you get kidnapped or anything happens, it, it, it puts the government in a horrible position. So there's that. There's the circus of life. You have to like people. You have to have a pretty strong commitment to public service. You should be at a certain age. Um, you, it's not a young person's job. Um, it, it, it's not, it's, you don't take it to improve your career or your, or your, or your CV. That, that should already be in good shape. And you should be able to speak French the, uh, as well as English. Um, it, it's not that complicated, and you should respect the, the system that we have. You should not want to have a republic because you're representing the sovereign. Um, but none of these are unobvious, um, and we've had some excellent governor generals. Um, we've also had some duds. <laughs> we've had some interesting people in that position, haven't we? Yeah, we, we have. Yeah. Uh, it, somebody asked me whether this is a constitutional crisis, and I'll deflect that question directly to you. It's not. It, it's actually uh, it's a tragedy in, the, in that it didn't have to happen. It's a tragedy for Julie Payette, who's a good person, um, and has been caught out um, by character traits that shouldn't have never had the chance to be thus exposed. But it's not—it's not a constitutional crisis. There's a—we have protocols. The Chief Justice of Canada is the acting administrator of the country. He can sign all the legislation. He can't—he can't do things like giving the Order of Canada. And and it is with a minority government, which we do have at the moment. It is important that a governor general be appointed quite quickly because. Uh, at election time with the minority government, um, there's always the option of the governor general going to the opposition parties and saying, well, look at the, these, these chaps want to have an election, but do you think you could all get along well enough to form your own government? I mean, it's unlikely with the opposition diversity that we've got, but it's a possibility. And that's actually one of the major roles of importance for, for a vice regal figure, whether it's a lieutenant yeah. governor or governor general. One last question for you. Uh, does this situation put the issue of um, the significance and the importance of the Crown into a broader discussion perspective? There's always talk about whether Canada should become uh, less reliant or less connected to, to, the, to, the, uh, to the royal family, to the Queen, to the head of state. Do you think that argument's going to gain traction because of what's gone on in the last few days? Not any more than it usually does. Um, my well, I'm I believe in our system. I think it's a good system, and I think the spectacle that we've been watching south of the border should give us some faith that that we have a, a more stable system. Actually, um, you know my view, sir. I think the Americans keep reelecting George III every four years, but we've got a, a, a an evolved 
Westminster system. Um, I think if Canadians in their collective think that it's time to shed our association with the monarchy, they'll make that decision. Um, but at the moment, um, it requires so much constitutional um, head jumps, you know, it, it's almost impossible to conceive. It needs the majority, not a majority, it needs everyone agreeing to it, every province, every legislature. And and there's things that the Crown can still do for this country that we need done, in, and particularly in the area of Indigenous reconciliation, where the Indigenous community of this country actually respects the Crown more than it does the Confederation system of government. And there's a way of making the Crown work for all of us as an intermediary between uh, uh, between these different factions. So before we get rid of the crown, let's see if they can do us a favor to heal our own wounds, our own self-inflicted wounds. James, it's been a long time since we spoke. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Look, you reported on Biden when he was senator and as Vice President Barack Obama. How do you see him, see him as president? What are our, our Americans looking for, and what do you think the world will see? Well, in the case of Joe Biden being elected president, it's a situation uh, in which uh, the voters are selecting someone with whom they have been well familiar for a very long time. Um, that could have been said of, of Donald Trump in, in 2016, insofar as he had been famous for a very long time. Uh, but he had been completely untested in politics or government. And, and that, of course, is exactly uh, Mr. Biden's specialty. Uh, and so um, they were looking for what they already saw, what they already knew very well, and that was Joe Biden. As one Democratic strategist put it to me during the campaign, Roy, Joe Biden is like an old chair that really, every time you sink into it, it makes you feel pretty good. Uh, so uh, I think um, uh, in, in substantive policy terms, uh, so far, we are seeing uh, what what many expected we would see, which is a kind of uh, Obama administration redux. So, if we look at Biden and his relationship, well, look look at this country, at Canada, and we do have the Keystone XL executive order. There is great opposition to this order provincially in Canada, and the Prime Minister Trudeau said he raised objections with Biden in their call yesterday. What's behind? the decision to make that an executive order on day one, James? So the Keystone XL pipeline in U.S. politics, uh, and particularly on the left, has become a kind of cause celeb. Um, I think it's safe to say that Keystone long ago ceased to be um, a project or um, an issue uh, which was looked at in solely objective terms but rather a kind of mythos came to prevail over it, um, and to the point where its importance perhaps took on uh, outsized rank among other environmental issues. Uh, but in simplest terms, here in the United States, over the last three administrations now, uh, I think it is, going back to 2008 when the Keystone XL pipeline was first proposed, uh, to take crude oil from Alberta, Canada, to uh, Steel City, Nebraska in the United States, where existing pipeline infrastructure would then carry the uh, Alberta crude further to points uh, the Gulf Coast and, um, and to Illinois. Um, it's, it, it, what's interesting is I spoke to an activist, an environmental activist, who happens also to be the chairwoman of the Democratic Party in the state of Nebraska, Jane Clem, perhaps familiar to Canadians uh, for her uh, long record of activism on the Keystone XL pipeline issue. 
she she told me that the um, the company behind Keystone XL, Trans Canada, now I guess owned by TC Energy, if memory serves correctly, um, the, had originally stated, along with a lot of Republican politicians in the United States, that the Keystone XL pipeline project would bring a million jobs. Um, and she told me that that number has steadily decreased over time. And she said when uh, the uh, corporate executives are in the state of Nebraska and in settings where they are effectively under oath, uh, such as um, before county boards and, and making pleadings for permits and that sort of thing. Uh, the number of projected jobs from Keystone XL Pipeline has been placed as low as 600. Now, those are good-paying union jobs for U.S. workers, to be sure, and, and no one scoffs at 600 jobs. Um, but uh, it's interesting that she says that, in, essentially, uh, the corporation and Republican politicians have been lying to the American people about the number of jobs this would create. On that same day, I spoke with... Uh, someone named Frank Macchiarola, who's the senior vice president of policy um, at the American Petroleum Institute, which is a trade group that represents um, all the big petrol people and companies you'd imagine. Uh, and they told me that they still believe this would create 10,000 jobs, the Keystone XL pipeline, for U.S. union workers. What is fascinating, one last moment uh, note, if I could, Roy, is that uh, Keystone in this country also has another oddity to it as, a, as an issue, as an environmental issue. Normally, what you see are clashes between environmentalists and corporate interests, um, straight up. Um, and, of course, that is featured in Keystone with the oil industry, the petroleum industry, being in favor of the project. Um, but what you really see even more deeply in Keystone, and this perhaps makes it unique, is that uh, many of President Biden's traditional Democratic allies in the labor unions have favored Keystone and, were, and issued very... Uh, critical statements in the wake of President Biden's executive action on day one. Mm -hmm. And we have many First Nations groups, certainly in this country, who are very favorably disposed toward Keystone and see it as, uh, or saw it, still see it as an opportunity for economic revival and certainly economic growth. And I know the premiers... Let me, one last uh, parenthetical aside, if I may. When I tell you that Keystone XL pipeline became a cause celeb on the left, I've, I've been covering this for so long that I was covering the State Department um, when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. Wow. And the initial reports were that she was going to give her approval to the Keystone XL pipeline. She was reported to have remarked that the United States was either going to get its dirty oil from Canada or someplace worse. So we might as well get it from Canada, words to that effect. Um, but the left, um, environmentalist groups, uh, activist groups on the left in the United States launched a an intensive media campaign to uh, pressure the Obama administration to block the advancement of Keystone XL. And one of the, I, I really believe this, uh, having covered it at the time, that one of the sort of decisive factors, one of the big shoes to drop, so to speak, was when uh, the very popular comedian and actress, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, excuse me, um, released a video, direct to camera, speaking, uh, and urging President Obama to, to block Keystone Pipeline. It had a, a real impact, and it, for some reason it resonated. And, uh, and the decision came out shortly thereafter. Uh, the Obama administration moved twice to kill the Keystone XL Pipeline. President Trump revived it with an executive order of his own three right. days into his presidency. And now Mr. Biden has acted with similar uh, <laughs> alacrity uh, right. in, in restoring it to the status quo ante before James. Trump. James, I really appreciate your giving us the detailed information uh, on what you've covered in Keystone. It's not over here. Our premiers will certainly make sure of that. We'll be talking to them today and tomorrow.
Global news story is Sanicide. Strategic missteps, logistical hurdles, plague Ontario's early vaccine rollout. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is quoted in this story, and uh, he joins us, member of the Ontario COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force, infectious diseases specialist, and seemingly over the last year, my co-host on this program. I was trying to give you a weekend off, Dr. Bogosh, and you know what happened. What what happened? The story happened. It's important that we talk about it. So let me run through the first part of it. We're not up with the leading nations in vaccinating populations. We're a group of seven nations, but somewhere around 12 to 14 in the world, with just over 1% of the national population being vaccinated. And the global news story speaks of criticism of how Ontario's vaccine distribution is taking place. Hospitals prioritized over long-term care facilities and non-essential workers receiving the scarce vaccines before some doctors and nurses. And in the story, there are quotes from frontline doctors and nurses who are very upset about this. How do you interpret what's going on? Well, I think we have to sort of interpret this in the appropriate context. Like, one, yeah, for sure, this hasn't been perfect. That's, That's clear. But number two... From the very onset, long-term care has been the number one priority. And in fact, long-term care was always being vaccinated. And it, it actually, initially, for the first few days, it was workers or uh, people who worked in long-term care were being vaccinated. Then the Pfizer vaccine was moved into long-term care, and we got Moderna vaccine, which is being used in long-term care. But that's been the priority. I think the real criticism is, can we do it faster? That's that should be that should be key. Um, there has been tremendous progress a- across the province, uh, but of course, there's other priority groups. And when we actually had access to vaccines, it wasn't just long-term care; it was long-term care, indigenous populations, and frontline healthcare providers who were all being vaccinated. Now that there is a, a significant reduction in Pfizer vaccine, all efforts are being made to focus those resources on long-term care. Yes, people who are healthcare providers who got one dose. We'll get their second dose, but really all efforts are on long-term care now. But the, the story looks to and speaks about frontline physicians who are upset, angry that they didn't receive their vaccination or concerned they didn't receive their vaccination. When you have people who are not frontline health care providers receiving it, people in public relations are receiving it or have been receiving it. And the director of geriatrics at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital told Global News the results have been catastrophic, calling it senicide and saying the vaccine should have gone to people with the highest risk of dying, which other countries are doing. Um, you know, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization last November recommended first immunizations go to residents and staff in seniors' homes, adults over 70, healthcare workers, and adults in indigenous communities. But that didn't happen when the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines began arriving in the province, says the story. Yeah, I'm not here to defend anybody or anything, but I think it's appropriate to look at what exactly happened. And yeah, there were people who weren't uh, actively involved in front-facing, patient-facing roles that that got the vaccine. That shouldn't happen. Did that pull the vaccine from long-term care facilities? No, come on. Like, you know, it certainly wasn't appropriate. And when it was brought to the attention of, authorities that was changed quickly but that quite frankly doesn't impact whether or not long-term care facilities get vaccinated and that's actually out of a different pool for long-term care facilities so both can be true right you shouldn't give those vaccines to people who aren't patient facing 
it wasn't a tremendous number. I can't give you a number off the top of my head, but it wasn't a tremendous number of people. But also, we should be vaccinating long-term care faster. And also, one does not beget the other. We still have vaccine coming into the country and into the province, and that is being moved into long-term care swiftly. I would like to see it more swiftly, as would many others, but it, it, they, those needles are going into long-term care arms. Yeah, and I should point out here, that, I mean, it's not your ultimate responsibility. You're on the uh, task force, but you're not uh, directly responsible for everything that's being done with the vaccine. I just reach no, out to you, not. and you're but, very willing yeah. to come on and talk about it. So I yeah, appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Oh, and, and quite frankly, yeah, I'm, I, you're right. Like, I am arm's length from that, but I still, and I'm not excusing it. Like, you should, you got to get it right. you got to get it right, and you can't have non-patient-facing people get the vaccine. But if we sort of look at and so that that's clearly wrong. Like, no one's saying that that isn't wrong. That is clearly wrong. What I'm saying is that when that came to people's attention, that was raised quickly and rectified quickly and that it didn't amount to anything that would detract from swiftly vaccinating long-term care and we should be vaccinating long-term care faster like come on we should be so you know i think sometimes when something like this happens it's it it should be in the public's attention we should know about the mishaps along the way we have to uh, because we have to hold uh everyone government task force hospitals accountable we have to hold everyone accountable lives are at stake yeah exactly but i think we also have to frame it in an open and honest and transparent and factual manner and i'm not saying it wasn't framed in that way i'm saying this is just this is how it was uh but it 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 didn't like slow down the process of long-term care vaccinations so again going back to what the story reveals the fact that the vaccine needs to be stored in ultra-cold conditions was raised when distribution was talked about. Mm-hmm. But a health expert, again speaking with Global News for the story, argues there was plenty of time for the province to prepare. And there's criticism from health experts. And one of the criticisms is that the Ford government has not done as well as other provinces in vaccinating the most at risk. Quebec and British Columbia moved vaccination centers directly into long-term care facilities and nursing homes. That wasn't done in Ontario. Yeah, so that's really interesting, too. I got to tell you, I think, like I said, like where there's fingers to point, let's point them. Where there's criticism to be had, let's criticize. That's a bit of armchair quarterbacking. Because if you actually go back to December 14th, when needles started going into arms, and you looked at the global atmosphere, many places were not moving the Pfizer vaccines, and a few places were going to move the Pfizer vaccine. And, but many places were not. Ontario fell into the, we're not moving this vaccine. We're going to bring people to the vaccine, not the vaccine to the people with the Pfizer vaccine. Other places started to do that, and then Ontario pivoted and then did that as well, as did many other, uh, as have many other people before then. But we, we didn't do it up front. And like that, again, when you look at what were the recommendations at the time, the recommendations were to not move it. It doesn't mean it's actually a pretty finicky vaccine. Like you're not supposed to shake it uh, around because you can denature it and it can lose its effectiveness. Uh, so like they didn't want it to be thawed and shipped. Many people said you should do it. You should do it. You should do it. Other, pay, other places are doing it. Uh, and uh, but Ontario didn't, as did many, many other places didn't move it as well. When it became clear that it could be moved, Ontario did move it. 
There's actually a highly publicized uh, report. It was in Ottawa uh, where Ottawa started moving in and putting in the long-term care facilities. What people don't know is actually days before that, they were using it in Toronto long-term care facilities. They just didn't publicize it. They just didn't tell anyone it was happening. But it was started in, in Toronto days earlier. So it kind of boggles my mind. Like you would think that you would tell people that you were doing this. But but they didn't, and they were getting criticized for not mobilizing the vaccine in long term care. Now it's I mean it's it's certainly that between Pfizer and Moderna, those are both being used in long term care, and and there's a growing list of long term care facilities being vaccinated with both of those vaccines. Again, I know I sound like a broken record. It should be done faster. I think we should have tighter deadlines to to, to complete these vaccines because lives are on the line. But they are being mobilized. Absolutely. Let me just shift away from uh, from all of this for a moment. And ask you one other question. We're looking at uh, daily infection numbers. And again, with uh, respect for our listeners outside the province of Ontario, the story deals with Ontario. And so I'm just going to look at uh, one number that we received today. And the daily infections are down from yesterday. I think it was around 2,300, which is significantly lower than what we'd been seeing a week or two ago. What do you attribute that to? Well, there's a big trend. I mean, there's a good trend in most of the country. It's not just Ontario. You look at BC, Alberta, sorry, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, uh, minus New Brunswick's having a bit of an outbreak now, but the rest of the country, like cases are down. Cases are down and heading in the right direction. Ontario certainly has about it. Now we're at 12 days of uh, lower seven-day average, day after day after day. Like we're heading in the right direction. It's probably the December 26th measures that were taken in, uh, in Ontario. We had a total holiday blip, uh, but, uh, but we're on the other side of that now. Um, way too early to get complacent. Way too early to pat anyone on the back and say, job well done. Way too early. We're still getting over 2,000 cases per day. Your healthcare system can't absorb that number of new cases per day. It just can't. It just can't. But it's also, you can all, we have to acknowledge that the arrows are pointing in the right direction. We just have to maintain that for some time. Okay. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're not a spokesman for the government of Ontario. I want to just uh, reiterate I that. I sure uh, am not. God, no, <laughs> I, I know will criticize not. where criticism I always have. If, if, you know, criticize policy where it needs to be criticized, but also occasionally they do things right too, and it's okay to say that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.